0: Uh, We are studying the Gospel of John. We started this a number of weeks ago, and so what we're going to do this morning is we are going to jump over uh, to chapter 12 in the Gospel of John, and then next week we will be going back to where we left off, or after Easter we'll be going back to where we left off. So this is chapter 12 in the gospel according to John. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus uh, was of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this anointment uh, not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and had charge of the money back. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor, you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast uh, that, that Jesus was coming, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. I do want to mention this too before I go any further. That on Monday Thursday what we're going to be doing is looking at Matthew 28 verses 36 through 46, which is uh, the prayer that Jesus prays in Gethsemane as he prepares for his tribulation. So if you want to spend some time reading that and looking at that before Thursday, it might be helpful to you. Roughly three years of ministry have taken place now in in the life of Jesus, active public ministry. It is really remarkable how well Jesus has become known among the Jews. One of the reasons is this, is because most of the ministry of Jesus was in Galilee. It wasn't in Judea. Most of the miracles that we read about that he he performed, he didn't perform them in Jerusalem or Judea. He performed them in Galilee. So it really is amazing the impact that Jesus has had on the Jewish people as a whole during those three years. Last week we studied the cleansing of the temple, which we said at that point, you know, the the narrative that falls at the very beginning of the gospel according to John and all the others It's at the end. And it's one of those points that people bring to your attention when they begin to maybe question the veracity and truthfulness of the Bible. That, you know, John says it happened at one time and the other ones say that it took place later. But I would challenge us with the idea that uh, I would imagine that Jesus, every time he went into the temple, it was very upsetting to him. When he saw how people were... Not worshipping the Lord in the same mind and heart that God had intended for them to. So it's very easy for us to believe that Jesus did it more than once. But the point I want to make here is this. Is if he did it at the beginning of his, his ministry like we find in the Gospel of John. It hasn't made one whit of difference. That they're back to business as usual. And Jesus is inclined to do the same thing all over again, overturn those tables of the money changers and chase all the people out of the, uh, out of the court of the Gentiles who were there selling animals for people to sacrifice. Price gouging, folks. it's six days before the Passover and Jesus returns to Bethany where uh, which is on the Mount of Olives and this is where Lazarus and Martha and Mary live is where Jesus had been when he had raised Lazarus from the dead uh, very recently it's amazing how the circumstances have changed so much in such a short period of time When Jesus had been there before, there was grief and there was sadness in that family and the people around them, their, their friends and neighbors that loved them. The priest had instructed. People that if they heard anything about Jesus, where he was, etc., etc., they were supposed to come and tell them about it. Notice here that they do not do that. What they do instead is they throw Jesus a big party. Martha was there, very, very busy serving as typically was her the part that she played in things like this Lazarus was there just think about Lazarus is there sitting at the table close to Jesus maybe right by Jesus when he had been dead and in the tomb for 3 days a short time before that can you imagine the joy and they just can you imagine being Lazarus really Dead and in the tomb for three days and then God through Christ breathed life back into you. Can you imagine going through that? I would imagine that he he had a sense of the newness of life like you and I have never had a sense of the newness of life. And how precious it is. And how blessed he was by Christ by this gift of life anew that he had given to him. And to his family. And it really should be reflected in the the approach to life and sense of life that you and I have as well. I don't know about you. I don't know where you're at as far as Christ goes. Some of you don't remember a time in your life when you did not believe. I, on the other hand, can remember a good bit of even my adult life when I was an unbeliever. When I was dead to God. I wanted nothing to do with Him. I ran from Him. But He wanted me. I still don't understand why. He came looking for me. He came chasing after me. He laid hold of me. He breathed life anew into someone who was otherwise dead. So there's a sense in which every believer should be able to relate to Lazarus, his experience to some degree, because there's a sense in which this is exactly what God has done for us. Some of you have believed as far back as you can possibly remember. And that's okay. But for those of us who don't have the same history where we always basically believed, we have a taste of what Lazarus experienced. Martha's busy serving, as she always seems to have been doing. Mary, on the other hand, just remember this, not so many days before Mary had also come and fallen at the feet of Jesus, but with a totally different mindset and art set in totally different circumstances. The first time she was there in grief. She was grieving because she knew that if Jesus had been there, that Lazarus never would have died. And she was grieving the loss of her brother. But at the same time, she was grieving the fact that Jesus didn't come and save him. But Jesus purposely stayed at a distance. And Lazarus died from his illness. And yeah, he was buried in the tomb for three days. Because Jesus knew the rest of the story. Can you imagine being Jesus because he loved Lazarus? Can you imagine him having to sit at a distance and let him be exposed to this experience? To undergo all of the emotional and the physical and all of that that went along with this? But he did that because he knew what was going to come out on the other end was well worth all of it. But Mary comes, and again she kneels at the feet of Jesus, but today with a very different mindset. She is there loving Jesus. She is there worshiping Jesus. Because she has experienced the love of Jesus in a way recently that she had never before. She could do nothing less than what she did. She had to do this. She wanted to do this. He had done so much for her, she wanted to do a little for him. To express her appreciation for what he had done for her and for her brother and for her family and for their friends. All of us should also know what that looks like. Because being a Christian means not not withdrawing from people and separating yourself, isolated apart from everyone else. It means entering into the fray And showing the love of Christ in the hearts and the lives of all the people around us. Whether they're fellow believers. We understand this, that one of the biggest sources of encouragement we have is one another. And we all need that encouragement. Every one of us. And I'm so thankful for being in a church where Lori and I feel that encouragement constantly. And it's our hope and our prayer that everyone else here does too. The daily we encourage one another in our faith. But here you have Mary coming and doing something that was considered to be like the lowest thing that anyone could ever do, and that is to take care of someone's nasty, sandaled feet. And she takes this very expensive ointment we 300 denarii. Do you have any idea what that means? Denarii was basically how much the common laborer would get for one day's wages. So you're talking about the cost of this stuff was about what someone would have been paid for working for 300 days. I would imagine it could very well have been the most precious possession that Mary had. That she was coming, and she was not only willing, but she was desiring to give Jesus the very, very best. Not what was left over after everything else was taken care of. But wanting more than anything else, to give him the very best that she possibly could. And that should be a challenge for all of us, that as we go about our Lord's business, we should always have the mindset that we want to do the very best that we can do. Not just mediocre or not just enough to get by, but really, truly to put our heart and our soul into all that we do for our Lord Jesus. Judas was upset he couldn't believe that she had the audacity to waste this very precious stuff on Jesus feet he couldn't believe it and John helps us understand why and that is because he was a thief He had been entrusted with the funds for Jesus and the disciples. He was the money manager. And he used to take money, steal money, from Jesus and his brothers on a regular basis. So what he sees with what Mary does is this, is... He's thinking about all of the money that could have been in his pocket as a result of this. And she has just wasted it away in his eyes. Do you see the contrast between the two? Mary wants to give the very best to him. And Judas wants everything else. Before I move on, I want to say this to you this morning. That good preaching, good biblical Christ-centered preaching should always humble us. For our Lord Jesus Christ. It should not, however, leave us there. It should lift us up anew when we're reminded once again how precious the sacrifice in Christ was given for us. How important we are to Him how much he loves for us, how much he cares for us. And let me tell you, if you walk out of the doors of the sanctuary on any given Sunday and you don't have some sense of that happening, then you need to get a new guy. Because I'm not being faithful in doing what Christ has called me to do. And that is to help all of us experience anew the fullness and the completeness of the love of Christ that He has for us. Please don't ever let the cross become routine. It's a measure of many things, but one of the uh, things is this. It's a measure of just how much God cares for you. How much God loves you. How deep His love and His care is for Bucky and Mabel and Marilyn and Joe and Mike and Lori and me. That should be the most humbling thing of all. You know, I can see why he would love Bucky and Maybell. You got to love Bucky and Maybell. They're just great, lovable people. But when I look at myself, it's mystery. But at the same time, you know it's true, you know it. When you experience the love of Christ, you know it. It's not just something written in a book. It's not just written in the Bible. It's something that you know personally, really. You felt it. You know the truth of it. And when we're brought to that place, how in the world can we ever do anything but celebrate him the sad thing is that the priests the Pharisees they're supposed to be the ones who are presenting God to the people over and over again encouraging them spiritually and building them up spiritually and they were doing everything but that. Do you understand that they were all just a bunch of Judases? Some exceptions, perhaps. But by and large, they were all just a bunch of Judases. You see, the temple business has become very lucrative. The selling of the animals, the, the money exchanging that took place, and the priests got a cut of it. You read in the Bible, they were, very, they were some of the wealthiest Jewish people around, the priests. There's no foundation for that in the Old Testament at all. Yeah, the people provided for the priest. But it was not this lucrative position that you were supposed to use in order to advance yourself in the world and make yourself wealthy. And that was the common thing. We don't have to look very far to see the same thing happening very often with our public officials. You see, Judas and the priests and the Pharisees are clear examples of just how far and how deep the human heart has become blinded to the realities of God and our fallenness and sin. It's hard to imagine that they, that they can go through with all of these plans that they've made and feel good about it. J.C. Ross says this, that these are examples of the standing proof to mankind that men may see signs and wonders and yet remain hard as stone. Nothing can melt it down but the grace of God. So let me just tell you something. The only thing that separates you from one of these Pharisees or Sadducees or Judas is the grace of God. If God had left you where you were, that is where you would be, angry at him, denying him, trying to advance yourself into the world, does not much care about anything else. One of the crazy things about all of this is it doesn't seem that the chief priest even appeared to question whether or not Lazarus had actually been raised from the dead or not. If you read it, it's almost like they've assumed it's true, but it doesn't matter because not according to their perfect, to their pre-planned plans and their purpose and all of this, etc. They're just—they're blind. They're blinded to their own sin. But again, it's just, it's just can, you, can, you, can you grab hold of that? That, that? It's almost like they assume that it's a true story, but it doesn't make any difference. Not only that, they've heard all of these things that people are saying about Jesus. All these miracles he's done in Galilee. They've sent representatives at times to look into this. They've heard it over and over and over again. He's doing these great and miraculous things that only God could do, but they don't care. Just a measure of how hard the human heart is toward God. But by His grace. Grace is what separates us from anyone else. And only grace. Oh, get this! Not only you know, they didn't want to see Jesus dead; they make plans to kill Lazarus again, as if they think somehow they can undo what Jesus did. But again, it's a true measure of the spiritual blindness that these so-called religious leaders suffered from. They had this blind hatred of Jesus and everything and everybody associated with him. Because he was stepping on their toes and causing them problems. The next day, Jesus began to approach Jerusalem and... The crowd begins to gather. Word spreads that Jesus is coming from Bethany. And so there are two groups that actually converge, or two crowds that converge on one another. Those who had gathered to see Jesus and the resurrected Lazarus at Bethany on the previous day, and those who were pouring out of Jerusalem, who had gathered to celebrate the Passover, who had now heard that Jesus was coming into the city. And I want you to understand something. This was no small crowd. Josephus, historian, first century, he estimated that in A.D. 64 and 65, the attendance at Passover was 2.7 million people. Not so many years beyond this. So I I just want us to understand something. It's not like the crowd that shows up even for the Super Bowl. Or some football game or something. Or even some big religious. You're talking about a mass of people like you probably, it's hard to even conceive of it. You just think about all the, 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 the difficulty it created for Jerusalem because there had to be enough food there to feed everybody. They had to have enough facilities to, to, to take care of everybody's needs. And can you imagine riding on this donkey through this mass of millions of people? certainly what Jesus deserves and far more and they're waving palm fronds, palm branches for the Jews that was a symbol of military victory Kind of developed, the idea kind of developed during the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Palm branch became a symbol for the Jewish people of military victory. One of the saddest things about all of this is the majority of those people who came, came for all the wrong reasons. They believed that Jesus, the Messiah, had come to deliver them from Roman oppression. That's what most of them were celebrating. They had no clue that Jesus had come actually for a totally different reason not to deliver them from the romans but to deliver them from themselves from their own sins and just to demonstrate the fickleness of people Many of those are now chanting Hosanna as Christ comes into Jerusalem. Within a matter of days, their voices will be heard amongst the multitude screaming at the top of their lungs, Crucify Him. Because He simply doesn't turn out to be the Messiah. That they expected that they want it that they thought they needed well the religious leaders are mystified at all of this going on they have conversation amongst themselves You see that you're gaining nothing. All the efforts that we've done. All the things that have been put into this. To put an end to this. Have been absolutely to no avail at all. Look. The world has gone after him. Perhaps a prophecy. Unwitting prophecy. Prophecy. Because we sit on the other end of 2,000 years of Christianity, and, and let me just tell you, 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 can, you can maybe make some arguments for this, that, or the other, but no one can, can, can make the same argument that you can for Christianity, and that is that Christianity has affected the world history in a way that no other religion ever has by a long shot. There's a sense in which it is a world religion. Now, let me just say this Islam is gaining some ground, but let me tell you, Islam is still way behind Christianity. It's still very much concentrated in just a few areas of the world. It's spreading, don't get me wrong. And one of these days it may uh, turn the tables on Christianity. But up to today there's only one religion that is, could be in any sense of the world, called a worldwide religion. And that is Christianity. Now as a believer, can you think of anything that would be better than for the Jesus Christ and his message to go out to the whole world? There's a sense in which I think these Pharisees were unwittingly prophesying about what the result of all this was going to be. That it wasn't going to stop there. It wasn't going to stop in Jerusalem. But it was going to spread through the world like a raging fire. And let me just say this. There still are some people groups that have never been reached by the message of Christ. But they are few. And we still have brothers and sisters. that, we, that Like we've seen all through the ages. Who, who, who pick up. And they leave family and friends and very often lucrative jobs and possessions and this, that, and the other to go to remote places for no other reason to share Jesus with other people. I'm thankful that we we, we, we participate in a denomination as a very active foreign missions agency. PCA is not that big of a denomination compared to many. We have a bunch of foreign missionaries spread all over the place. One of the big differences between Christianity and Islam is very often those people that are professing faith in the Islam religion are forced to do so. In other words, very often when you get these statistics coming out of these nations where Islam is predominant, there are a lot of those people there that are doing what they're doing because they know if they don't, they're going to be in deep weeds and they could even lose their life. So what are they going to do? They're going to go along with what everybody else wants to do. Now, unfortunately, the argument could be made that Christianity has done the same thing at times. You think about the Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition. People were basically forced to profess faith in Christ. And if they didn't, off with your head. Is that the way that Christians are supposed to go about their business? No, we know that. We understand this. That that may have gone by the name of Christianity, but fundamentally it wasn't Christianity. That a Christian would never think for a minute about doing something like that. See, one of the reasons that a lot of people are laying hold of Islam today is because they're afraid. I mean, you hear testimonies of people coming out of these cultures, and this is what they will tell you. You have to believe it, you have to go along with it, or you're in prison or dead. But I can't think of a greater thing for this world and in everyone in it that the whole world would truly go after him. Can you imagine what the world would be like? No more wars, no more prisons. Maybe a few. No more failed relationships, failed marriages, not so many wayward kids. My whole point is there is nothing like the message of Christ. what the world needs to hear and what the world also needs to see lived out so be encouraged be strengthened because Christ lives outside of you but he also lives in you he will keep you on course love him lean on him depend upon him absolutely for everything You won't forget it.